focus on uh, verses 7 through 10 of this passage, but I'm going to read to you uh, 3 through 14. Uh, Now, here's why. In the original language this was written in, in the Greek, that's all one sentence. Uh, Now, it's, it's true. You teachers... Just relax. Uh, I know he wouldn't have passed your class uh, because of a run-on sentence, but that is indeed uh, uh, what it is. Now, in the English, they've broken it down some so we can understand it. Uh, It's still pretty long sentences, but uh, in the original, that's all one sentence. And and the reason I want to read it together is uh, uh, very much what what we just sang about, and, uh, and that is, there we see the work of the Trinity. The, the Trinity is, uh, that word is not used in the Scripture. You won't find it anywhere in the Scripture. So if your Jehovah's Witness friends say, you show me the word in the Bible and I'll, I'll agree that it's there, it's not there. But the concept is there. The truth is there. The word Trinity is just a description of that theological uh, truth that is revealed in the Word of God. But what we see is uh, in verses 3 through 6, which we looked at last week, you basically see the work of the Father. In verses 7 through 10, basically see the work of the Son. And 11 through 14, you see God's Holy Spirit revealed as well. Now, because they are one God in three persons, there's overlap in all of those. And so today, even though we're talking about the work of the Son, uh, we're going to be talking about the plan of the Father. And so all of them uh, work together. But I, I, wanna, I want you to remember, as we have entered into this uh, book, Study of Ephesians, that it was written not just so a bunch of theological concepts would be thrown out and people would be impressed and they'd learn their systematic theology. This was written to very real people who were living in very hostile situation. And so I I want you to think as as we go through this, just like we did last week, I want you to try to hear it from their perspective. How, How is this encouraging? How would it have been encouraging to the Ephesians? And how is this encouraging in my own life? If what it says here is true, we should be encouraged as the people of God. Beginning with verse 3 in Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. 
In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were seated with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, your word has cascaded over us and turned into a, a flood of amazing truths. And we can't begin to scratch the surface. But that's our task. And so will you teach us this morning? Will you bring encouragement as we grasp these amazing truths? And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So don't be overwhelmed. I heard great things about discussions last week in the community groups as we are, are looking at these huge truths. Uh, you know, what I just read to you, that section alone could easily be several years worth of preaching. Don't worry. I am, I am forcing myself uh, to, to move ahead, and, uh, and, and yet even three verses uh, contains uh, such uh, big universal truths from God and about Him that that's the challenge every single week. The challenge is not how do I you know, fill up 30 minutes, it's what, what do I leave out? What, what am I going to have to not say this week. So let's, let's take a look at, um, first of all, I, I told you there's overlap 
So I'm beginning really with the Father's big plan for our adoption. Now last week we talked about our adoption, and it's not even mentioned in these three verses, but it's certainly the context. And that is that uh, we who were orphans and had no claim on the kingdom, because not only were we not children, we were enemies of the kingdom. And the Scripture tells us clearly that those without the light hate the light. And you may say, I didn't hate God. If you're not in Christ, there's only one other category, and that is hatred for God. And so that was our plight. It was hopeless. But he chose to adopt us, not because of anything within us, but only because of his good pleasure, because of his plan, and in love. Now, that's what was told to the people in Ephesus that we looked at last week. People who were perhaps wondering, does, does God love me? This is, you know, this is not what I maybe thought that being in Christ would be like. This is hard. There's persecution. There's hatred towards us. We're in the minority. And yet, he lays out these truths. Look, this is, this is who you are in the beloved, in Christ. So here's what he says in verse 9. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ. The mystery of his will. Now, it is not a mystery See, in, in Ephesus, there would be those that were uh, those religions that were called the mystery religions. And only, only certain people would know about those truths, and you had to kind of get on the inner circle in, other, in, a, in order to know about them and experience them. And so he takes this familiar concept, familiar word, and he says, look, this is... This is something different. It is a mystery, not in the sense that it can't be known, but in the sense that the only way it's going to be known is as he reveals it to us. And he has revealed it to us. That's what, that's what he's, uh, he's emphasizing here. Now, when we, when we talk about the mystery of salvation or what he's revealed about salvation, it is really important, and we talk about the, uh, the Father's big plan for our adoption. I want to clarify what would be a wrong view of the Father. We, we will see that, you know, Jesus, he goes to the cross to pay the penalty for, not for his sin, but for our sin. And there would be some that would characterize the Father and say, well, well then he must be a, a very cruel kind of God F to, to have to be satisfied 
Why didn't he just make it all better? Is he an angry God? Perhaps uh, the, the, the only reason we can have a relationship with him is because Jesus, who's the good guy, we have the, the hard father and the good son in some people's minds. Jesus, who is, is the good one, comes before the father and pleads with him to do something even if it's against his will, he's basically saying, Father, give them a break. And then the Father reluctantly agrees, okay, because of what you've done, I'll give them a break. Never. Never is that the character of the Father. It is his perfect holiness that demands that sin be paid for. But it is his perfect love that caused him to make the plan. Remember last week in verses 4 through 6. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. See, it's talking about the Father. According to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. So the right concept is, yes, he's the offended one. But the offended one provided for the offense. The offended one says, this will take care of it. And I have such deep love for my people that I will send my one and only son to pay for their sin. And Jesus did so because he wanted to. You see the character of them? We should never have any kind of a, you know, that there, there's quarreling between the two, that one's trying to make an, you know, another in the, in the uh, Holy Trinity, one's trying to make another happy or, or anything like that. But instead, they're all on the same page, always. With the pouring out of love upon his people. That's where the plan came from. Now look at the work of Jesus for our adoption. There's two aspects of it that are mentioned here. Verse 7. In Christ, there is redemption through his blood. In him we have redemption. Verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Now, if we aren't careful here, this is when we, we can fall into the trap of Christian speak. Here's what I mean. Um, some of you grew up in 
churches where uh, you heard all the time about the blood. You sang the blood medley. <laughs> there's, you know, there's power in the blood, nothing but the blood, and the blood will never lose its power, and, and, and so on. You're familiar with that. You've, you've always kind of talked about that. But take yourself out of that for a moment. What if you didn't have that background? I know some of you don't have that background. And so you come in, and all of a sudden you start hearing, what do you mean cleansed in the blood? What do you mean his blood will cover us? His blood covers sin. So we, we, we shouldn't take that for granted, that concept uh, for granted. So if you didn't grow up with that, or if you never really thought, well, what, yeah, I, I, I never really grasped why we talked about the blood so much. Hebrews 9.22, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, that wasn't a new concept in the New Testament that Jesus, you know, the, that he had to go to the cross to shed his blood. You go back to the Old Testament and you see it page after page talking about the shedding of blood. You know where the first place that blood is shed? In the garden. After the fall, Adam and Eve were ashamed. And God slew an animal, shed the blood of an animal to provide skins for them to cover their shame. And then all the way through the Old Testament, we see the sacrifices, we see the Passover, we see the feasts, and over and over again, there is the shedding of the blood. But the problem with all of the shedding of all of that blood is that it, it, it never, it, it wouldn't end. It had to be year after year, day after day. <clears throat> and the first thing that the priest had to do was to to shed blood and for his own sin. And there was only one thing that would end it. And that was Jesus, Jesus fulfilling it all. The blood of Jesus being shed. The perfect Lamb of God. Once for all. And then it was never necessary again. Malcolm Muggridge said this, the, the cross for the first time revealed God in terms of weak, weakness and lowliness and suffering, even humanly speaking of absurdity. He was seen thenceforth in the image of the most timid, most gentle, and most vulnerable of all living creatures, a lamb, Agnes Dei, the Lamb of God. So the sin offering, the peace offering, the guilt offering were the blood of animals representing payment for sin. 
and all of it pointed to Jesus. That's what he's speaking about here. Now, he goes on and he uses, uh, uh, the, the, uh, he emphasizes redemption. In him we have redemption through his blood. So you've got the, the uh, blood providing for what he calls redemption. What is that? Well, a definition could be uh, to release upon payment of ransom. There's lots of titles. I was thinking about this this week. There's lots of titles about, uh, of Jesus, but I don't know if there's any more precious than Redeemer. If I were going to name a church, I would name it, of course, St. Andrew's Presbyterian. That would be my... But my second choice would be Redeemer because that's at the very core of who we are even at St. Andrew's Presbyterian in celebration of the one who redeemed us. Now, what's that word mean? What would it have meant to the folks in Ephesus when they see uh, in him we have redemption through his blood? Well, there's, there's several Greek words that could have been used here. One, and they all kind of had to do with going to a marketplace, buying a slave. And as awful as that is, I want you to stay with me because this is how they would have understood it. Uh, and, and there were words that were, were tied to that. One would be, uh, it'd be like buying a slave. And then, let's say you get tired of the slave, you can take him back to the market and sell him again. That's one word that could have been used for redemption. A second word would be uh, if you buy a slave out of the market, never to return him again, okay? But still a slave. That was a word that could have been used for redemption. But the word used here is this. It denoted ransoming someone and then setting them free. You see the difference? So you go to the market, you purchase the slave, and you you not only never take them back to the market or never keep them as a slave, you set them free. That's the word that Paul chose here, and that's what would have been communicated to them, that That's what Jesus achieved on the cross. That's what redemption is for us. It meant that we're no longer under the bondage of sin. Do we sin? Yes. But we no longer have to. We can choose to sin or not to sin. If we sin, we're choosing to go against our new nature which is one of freedom from sin. And that leads to the the explanatory phrase that uh, in Christ there is forgiveness. It says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Now here's how it works. We are forgiven in the past for the penalty of sin. We are forgiven in in the present, being released from the power of sin. That's what we, we just talked about, that you no longer have to sin. You can't blame it on, 
on Satan or an old, the old nature or anything like that if you sin. If, you, if you're in Christ, if you're a believer in Christ and you sin, you chose to sin. And you're going against your new nature. And then the forgiveness is also the future. And this is what I'm looking forward to. When we will be free from the presence of sin. And that's, that's why it's called glory, right? <laughs> we will no longer be susceptible to falling into sin. And that's based upon grace. That's what he says here according to the riches of his grace. Now, in your uh, uh, outline there, I put, I put the words of grace. I always share this with the inquirer's class. Grace, you can, you can write this next to it. God's riches at Christ's expense. That's an easy way to remember. God's riches at Christ's expense. Say it with me. God's riches at Christ's expense. It's an easy way to remember what grace is. Now, how do we get it? Well, we don't work for it. We don't earn it. We sang about that rock of ages. Nothing in my hands I bring. Only to the cross I cling. So we have nothing to offer. The only way we're going to get it is if it's lavished on us. And that's what it, it says in verse 8. That word lavished is like a downpour, like an overflow, like a flood. Isn't that a great way to, to think of grace coming over us? That's what it took. We had to have it flooded over us because we, we, we wouldn't even know how to receive it if he didn't initiate it. Now, look at the, the last verse we're looking at today, verse 10, in terms of the Father's plan for our future here. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. That phrase, to unite all things in Him, uh, that's actually one word in the Greek. <laughs> to you, it, I mean, is, isn't that efficient? You know, it's just one word to unite all things in him. But the actual better translation, unfortunately most English versions don't add this in. There is a prefix there, and the prefix is again. So the best translation would be to unite all things in him again. Now here's the idea. At creation before the fall, Christ was the head, and everything was under his headship. That ceased to be the case at the fall. But it will be reunited again by redemption under his headship. When Christ returns, it will all come together again. When I stand in glory, I'll see his face. There I'll serve my king forever in that holy place. Thank you, Father, for giving us your Son and leaving your Spirit till the work on earth is done. Paul speaks of it elsewhere, what it's going to be like. 
Philippians 2. God has bestowed on him the name that's above every name so that in, at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what it'll be like. Should that encourage the Ephesians? What if they still ask with all that's going on, does Christ really care for me? As, as Ephesians, with everything we're facing, with all the opposition, am I important to God? Does He care? I read this week uh, an account from uh, Brennan Manning, who is now with the Lord. But he, uh, he was an author and a, a speaker. And he told the story of how he came to be have the name Brennan, a little bit different than most of us get our names. While growing up, his best friend uh, was named Ray, and they were the kinds of friends that did everything together. They went all through school together. They, they, when they could start driving, they bought a car together. Uh, they'd go out on double dates and all that, and so eventually uh, they both decided to en enlist in the service which they did, went through boot camp together, were assigned together, and actually went to war together. He was that kind of friend. Brennan says, we found ourselves in a, a foxhole one night, and we knew the enemy was out there, but we were talking and reminiscing about the days growing up when we were to together as kids, and while Brennan was talking, a live grenade came into the foxhole. His friend Ray looked at, at Brennan and threw himself on the grenade. Of course, it killed him, but it saved Brennan's life. Brennan came back from war. And sometime later, he actually became a priest. As a priest, they were told to choose a name and to choose a name of a saint for your name in the priesthood. Well, his friend's name was Ray Brennan, and so he took the name Brennan. He said that sometime later, he was visiting his friend Ray's mother in her home, and they talked deep into the night, sharing a cup of tea. And at one point, Brennan said to her, do you think Ray loved me? And he said she got up and shook her finger at him, and said, what more could he have done for you? He said, I had an epiphany at that point. I thought of 
standing before the cross of Jesus, wondering, does God really love me? And he said, I thought of Jesus' mother Mary pointing to the cross and saying, what more could he have done for you? And so, for the Ephesians and for us, if you wonder whether he cares for you, read these truths in Ephesians 1. Let them cascade over you. Let them flow over you and envelop you and meditate on what he's done for you and be encouraged. Let's bow together. Lord, will you keep that question far from our hearts because we become so convinced of how much you love us? Will you indeed lavish those truths upon us again and again? Help us not only to experience your grace, but be amazed again by it. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.